Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bonjour. Soyez les bienvenus à Hello Tomorrow. I'm Chris Smith. I'm the naked scientist. I'm very sorry if anyone's now terminally disappointed that I'm not actually naked. You'd be a lot more disappointed if I was actually naked. I can reassure you of that. Please extend a very warm welcome to George Church from Harvard University. A quick question before we start, because actually, about me, okay, I'm a virologist. I actually did my PhD in the middle of my medical degree on viruses. So, hands up who's got a virus? Hands up who's got herpes? <laughs> no one's going to admit to that. But actually, 90% of you plus should have your hands up, because most people carry at least one of the herpes viruses. Who's got herpes simplex virus? Who's had a cold sore? Come on, 60% of you should have your hands up. Let's try a positive control. Who's got a birthday this year? <laughs> a few more people are on the ball. Okay. <laughs> Epstein-Barr virus, glandular fever, who's, who's had that? Well, 90% of you should have your hands up for that. Now, the reason I know these numbers and the reason we know about these viruses, and these are very ancient viruses, they go back hundreds of millions of years. It's, it's absolutely a fact that dinosaurs had herpes viruses. The reason we know this is because of molecular biology. We can now unpick the genetic sequence of these viruses and we know how they make you unwell. And we know for a fact, for example, that once you pick up herpes simplex virus, it lives in your nervous system for the rest of your life. As James Bond fans know, diamonds are forever, herpes is for life. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that sets the tone a bit, doesn't it? Let's turn to George, who's, who's come all this way to talk to us. And it's been wonderful, actually. I've had a number of times in the past to chat to, to George on various radio programs, but this is the first time we've actually met. So a very warm welcome. Nice to meet you, George. Nice to see you. Tell us a bit about your career, because you've made enormous contributions over the course of your career to molecular biology, our understanding of genetics, and how actually DNA works. And before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, tell us a bit about you. I'm not sure how much I've contributed to understanding, but have helped with technology development uh, for reading and writing DNA. Uh, simple linear polymer of G's, A's, T's, and C's, six billion base pairs in every human being. And I've sort of had as a mission to get everybody their genome sequence, uh, all 7.5 billion of us. Well, let's start at the beginning then, because to many people... Genetics is completely foreign language. I mean, it may only have four letters in it, but they make pretty complicated words, and there are three billion of them in the average person, aren't there? So what actually, Times two. put, put yeah. really simply, is DNA? It's, it's not a blueprint. It's more like a recipe that, that tells a bunch of other machinery that it, that, it, that it makes how to make copies of itself and to make the rest of our body developing from a single cell up to the trillions of cells that are in our body. So it makes you different from me by about uh, 
millions of differences between you and me. But when we actually look at a cell, and almost every one of the 37 trillion cells that are in me have got a complete copy of my genome, which I inherited at the moment of conception, from half of it from my mum, half from my dad. But what actually, if we were to zoom in with a really powerful camera at the genome, what would we see? We now do have uh, powerful imaging and microscopes that can trace the chain of it. Typically, people stretch it out, very often break it up uh, before they sequence it. And, you know, you'd see a string of G's, A's, T's, and C's. Sometimes repetitive part is the part that is still a gap in our genome. So we announced uh, the genome was sequenced in 2001. And here, 18 years later, there's still about 5% of it that's missing. When you say missing, what do you mean? We don't have an exact sequence for it, for any human being. But there are probably a million people who have 95% genome sequence worldwide. I was very lucky because Sidney Brenner... who was involved in sequencing the genome, came to Cambridge, where I work, and gave a little talk. This was 2000, 2001. And he said, tomorrow there's going to be a really big announcement, which is is going to rock the world. And that was the announcement of the sequencing of the human genome. And, of course, about a third of that was done down the road from, from us at the Sanger, what's now the Sanger Institute in Cambridge. And at the time, there were people who said that this is all a lot of hot air and fanfare and hype, and actually it's not going to translate into very much. I mean, presumably you disagree with that. Uh, No, I agree with that. Uh, In the sense that the methods that were used were... uh, I had been... I felt that the methods we should have been developing from the very beginning were ones that would make it affordable for everybody to get sequenced. The methods we used did not produce even one clinical-grade genome. There were something that had representation of your mother and your father's genome separately, not mixed together. So it was a 3 billion base pair genome rather than a 6 billion base pair genome. So it was poor quality and poor cost, too. It was $3 billion genome. We needed to have it below $1,000. So I was very disappointed with it. And the number of discoveries actually made in it were were not that, you know, the, the hype was we now knew the number of genes. The number of genes estimated at the end were not that different from the beginning, and neither one of them was correct. We still don't know how many genes we have. So I think there was a small element of hype at the time. Hopefully I was innocent of it. Times have changed, though, haven't they? Because it was about a year ago I interviewed the guys at the University of Bristol who repeated the feat of the Human Genome Project, but they didn't have to spend $3 billion. They didn't have to spend a couple of decades. They did it with a nanopore device. And you helped to pioneer actually part of the technology that's informing how that works, didn't you? This is a a TV remote control sized device that will sequence a a genome and do it incredibly quickly. How how does it actually work though? Well, it's even, some of them are even smaller. They have some that are just a sliver at the end of your cell phone. But uh, the main sequencing is fluorescence microscopy, essentially. This has no microscopy in it at all. It's a chip and, and each element of the chip has a protein nanopore. So it's, proteins are a good way of getting atomically precise machines while the chips interface it sort of on the micron scale to a computer, a USB or Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. And it basically, the DNA either goes through the pore or it can go past the pore reading the triphosphates one by one. It literally reading single molecules of single-stranded DNA. 
the way that they put it to me was you can envisage a sort of rubber sheet with some holes in it and, and trying to pull each of the pearls of a pearl necklace through the rubber sheet. Right. And as each one goes pop, pop, pop through, yeah. you can record a little voltage change. And each of the individual DNA letters has a slightly different electrical fingerprint. And that tells you what sequence you're reading. And you do it enough times, line them all up, and you can work out what the genome sequence must have been. That's, that's right, except you're typically reading more than one at a time, depending on whether you're using the Genia method or the Oxford nanopore method, and you're typically reading changes in conductance. But yes, that's roughly how it works. Yeah. But the stunning thing is the price, isn't it? Because what took $3 billion and years and years and years originally took the guys in Bristol about, they said, about £5,000. Um, that's post-Brexit pounds, so that makes it even cheaper. Um, right. And, and it took them a couple of weeks yes. compared with, with all those years. So right. the, the, the rate at which we're doing this and the price at which we're doing this now right. has, has plummeted. Right. Well, the, the, the cost now for the fluorescent method is, uh, is closer to $300. But the real advantage of the nanopore, to my mind, is the portability. So you could, in principle, use it for monitoring your environment, the herpes in, in your uh, <laughs> environment. Uh, so those are two complementary. The, the once-in-a-lifetime genome you can do with the, uh, for $300 or so. In fact, it's, to the user now, it's getting close to $0 in the same sense that, thanks to Nebula genomics, it's like uh, maps and searches and encyclopedia are all free. Somebody has to pay for it, but the, it's so, the cost is so low, it's, the user doesn't need to pay for it anymore. Uh, have you ever sequenced anything really outlandish? Uh, Let's, yeah, I suppose the, the strangest sequence that we're working with is uh, the woolly mammoth. Where did you get one? Well, so, so uh, there are about uh, 23 elephant genomes that are done at this point. Some people might be, about half of them are extinct elephants. I was just in Siberia in August, and I got to personally dissect six beautiful frozen specimens. They're about 40,000 years old. They look like they're straight out of the meat department. Uh, I mean, they were just perfect shape. And, of course, my dissection tools was a, a big power drill. <laughs> but they, they were beautiful. So what did you use to get the DNA out of them? Because, forgive me, but when we look at Neanderthal remains, for example, now they haven't been put in permafrost, admittedly, yeah. and we have a Neanderthal genome, but the yeah. DNA was very degraded. Right. Uh, what was the status of the DNA from the mammoth, and where did you get it from? So we got it from each of the six mammoths, from fat, from marrow, and from muscle. And what we do is we can image it in the microscope uh, without breaking it apart. And so even though it's been cleaved by cosmic radiation over the 40,000 years, and so it's broken about every 1,000 base pairs or so, it isn't necessarily completely randomized until you extract it. So most people extract it and then they lose that 3D structure. So there's about 3 billion genetic letters in a mammoth. Is that about right, then? Well, that, the 3 billion for humans and mammoths is, is just from one parent, so it's 6 billion total. Right. Yeah. And, and if it's broken every 1,000, that means there's between 3 and 6 million bits. Yes. And you right. can image each of those in a cell. We have not done that, but, but we, have, we, have sh we have done some imaging on them. But the way that it's classically done, the 23 genomes that we already have for... for uh, elephants, and also uh, for humans, ancient and modern humans, they're all broken up intentionally, because uh, that's the way the sequencing devices work, and then you assemble them in the computer based on overlaps. 
it would be much better if you didn't break them up, which I think is where we're going with the new in situ sequencing methods. So what do you do then? You take a snapshot picture of where all the bits are, and what do you flag up? Do you use some kind of way of flagging up with, with fluorescence each of the sequence bits so you can identify each of the fragments? Is right. that how you do it? So the fluorescence imaging, the microscope, you just go along reading it, typically about 200, 300 base pairs at a time. And then the flags, if you will, are, are differences between that sequence and some other reference sequence that you've done or you can compare two brand-new sequences for interesting differences. Um, some of those differences explain, the, say, the cold resistance of the, uh, the animals. So can you, or are you at the stage now where you can actually lift complete genes out of the mammoth and effectively have what would have been the mammoth gene sequence? Right. And is that executable? If you put that into a cell, can you express mammoth genes 40,000 years after they were last expressed. So, so this, this is totally feasible. It's, it's all done through the computer. So you, you read these broken up pieces of DNA into the computer, and then the computer tells another instrument to synthesize this DNA, and then you can introduce those synthetic pieces into a, a living cell, and then you can test the properties either in vitro in biochemistry or in the cell. And this has been done for at least two mammoth genes already, the hemoglobin, which makes their blood exchange oxygen very well at close to the freezing point in their skin, and then a TRPV3 gene that's involved in neural sensing in a cold environment. So two genes have been brought back from extinction for the elephants, uh, two out of 20,000, and uh, entire genomes have been reconstructed for two viruses that were extinct, including the 1918 flu virus. So back in your, <laughs> back in your virology domain... Some people question whether that was a really great idea, but the point is, you can, we didn't do it, you can do it. Yeah. The work you're talking about was, was the team at NIH in Maryland, wasn't it? Jeff yeah. Taubenberger right. and his colleagues, about 15 years ago, 10, yeah. 12 years ago, as you say, recompiled the 1918 flu virus from, I think, victims, didn't, didn't they, yes, didn't they dig, dig people yeah. up from yeah. Alaska and, yes, and right. so on? Frozen victims, yeah. Because they rebuilt that fossil virus, as they dubbed it, and then found it really was rather lethal. Because the question was, was, was actually H1N1 1918 flu just coinciding with a really debilitated population who were really unwell uh, already? And so when you give them a bad dose of the flu, yeah. you have a high mortality rate. Or is there something special about that virus? And I think they're pretty comfortable by the time they've done the experiments and, and put it into yeah. to experimental animals that it was a pretty nasty virus. Yeah. Yeah, most of the victims were surprisingly young. That was the thing. You could say they were young and debilitated, or you could say it was a, an amazing virus. Yeah. So is there any risk? Because th there was a lot of concern about them re recompiling the 1918 flu. Is there any risk about bringing back from the dead genes from the woolly mammoth era? Is, is there anything that could be lurking in there? Yes. When, when you hoik these genes out of a long-dead mammoth, could there be viruses and things yes. embedded within what, what you think is ostensibly a hemoglobin gene, but hiding in there could be a bit of viral sequence that hasn't circulated, but now could because you've recapitulated this in the lab? Definitely, and that's part of the reason we're not reconstructing the entire genome. We have a project which has been successful to do the opposite, where we've eliminated the ancient viruses from the pig genome. So in this case, we've, we've not only reconstructed the DNA, or we've not only 
edited the DNA in cells, we've taken it all the way to mature breeding pigs, where for the first time, as far as we know, in the world, there are now pigs that have no endogenous retroviruses. So they have somewhere between 25 and 62 copies of these endogenous retroviruses, and we edited every single copy so that they no longer produce. And that's because we wanted the pigs to be organ donors to humans. And so you, the FDA did not think it would be a good idea to have immune-suppressed organ recipients with a lot of foreign retroviruses floating around. So just to be clear then, as a pig has evolved over the years, there have been various viruses that have got into the genome of the pig and effectively become dormant. There's, right. there's the genetic message for the virus yeah. sitting in the pig tissue and we may or may not see those come back to life periodically. But you're saying if we were to take that pig tissue and put that into a human with the DNA intact, there is a risk that some of these perhaps long-dormant viruses could in some they're, way... They're not really dormant. If you take a pig, any pig tissue, grow it in culture, it's producing active viruses. And if you co-culture with human cells, they will infect the human cells, and then the human cells will make that same virus. So it not only... Not only are they active, but, but they're active in humans. So it still isn't proven that it's a public health risk, but it just doesn't seem like a good start for a transplantation project. No, I think it would damage the brand before it yeah, really got launched, exactly, wouldn't right. it? But, yeah. um, because one would, should be cognizant that HIV actually possibly started in a similar sort right. of way, didn't it? Because the closest relative of HIV is SIV, simian immunodeficiency right. virus. Yeah. We, we can trace back HIV to chimpanzees having yeah. a very similar entity. And so people theorize that perhaps people cutting themselves when they right. were butchering and eating chimps yeah. maybe 100 years ago or yeah. so led to a jump of this SIV right. into humans and right. it then humanized. So, so it's, yeah. it seems like a reasonable concern. Yeah. Well, isn't it also true for swine flu and... Ebola. I mean, there are a lot of zo zoonotic viruses, basically, that, that transferred because we had too close an interaction between humans and their food, basically. Yeah. So you reckon you've tracked down all of these viruses in the pigs that could cause right. a problem? We showed this both by sequencing the whole genome after we were done, but also by looking for viruses in the media, and it was negative on, on both counts. But is there not a risk that there could still be some vestiges left behind. And if you've got half of one here on one bit yes. of the DNA and half of one here on another exactly. bit of the DNA, they right. could, because you can never say yeah. never in medicine, right. recombine and That's produce correct. a functional version or even a hybrid, which right. has a lot of implications that we hadn't previously thought of. So there are partial genomes, but since we sequenced the entire genome of the pig and since the mutation that we made is in the polymerase gene of the virus... If there were two halves that overlapped in that, we would have the sequence of both halves. I agree, you should never say never, and we're not, we, we can't guarantee it, but they're certainly much safer than any previous efforts. So th this, this is an old field, this 20-year-old xenotransplantation. Um, about $2 billion was spent uh, before they decided to shut it down about 20 years ago. And so now it's suddenly feasible again because of the new editing tools. Do you think that actually we're going to solve the problem of organ transplantation by just growing new bits in dishes from the donor person before we actually end up solving the problem of making things like pig tissues compatible and safe? I suspect not. I mean, we're working on both approaches. Making human organs from human tissue from any, any person is still quite challenging. 
we've got some primitive organoids, uh, not organs, that are about a millimeter in size. They have poor vasculature, poor, poor structure. I think this will change rapidly, but the pigs are already in preclinical primate trials at MGH, so that's on a fast track. It could be a couple of years that we'll be doing human clinical trials. And a variety of labs are working on this, not just ours. The record for heart transplant now is over 900 days survival. Because one of the most promising avenues that's come out in recent years has been to say, well, rather than try to predict what might happen when a person with a disease of some kind of genetic origin takes a drug, what we'll start to do is we'll take some cells from the person with the disease that's driven by whatever genes they carry, we'll persuade those cells in a dish to turn into some kind of representation of their disease in the dish. And then we can throw at it drugs and various therapies that might work in that person, but instead of it taking months, a clinical trial, a lot of expense and a risk for that person, we can very quickly get the dish to tell us, will this drug work in this person? Yes, I think that's much more where we're going in the medium term with these human organoids. That's very promising. In a certain sense, for transplantation, you want to have a universal donor. You want to have your freezers full of organs or other access to organs that are universal. But for drug testing, you'd like to have personalized. And the fact that they're small is actually an advantage. It means you can pack millions of little organs into a small device and run them through a variety of physiological and microscopic uh, analyses. People were saying to me that because they are all identical, you can do the same experiment and really do the same experiment many, many times. And so you know you're getting the right result. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, identical is probably too strong a word, but they are far more reproducible than anything that you can get and, and, and far closer to relevant than, than an animal model would be. Uh, they're not only human, but they can be individualized. Now, in terms of as we begin to understand more about diseases that arise through a genetic origin, this leads us into the realms now of being able to edit DNA and potentially fix some of these things. Now, what are the potential risks of doing that? If, if, if I know I've got, say, a gene that gives me a higher risk of dying of a heart attack owing to, say, high cholesterol, what might be the risk of you saying, oh, well, I can fix that, Chris. I can give you a new version of your APOE receptor, which is going to reduce your Alzheimer's risk and it's going to improve your cholesterol profile and put your insurance premiums down. What else might it do? Well, so the... You know, the approved gene therapies are for much more serious diseases, but inevitably we will get bolder and bolder as these work. So there's a giant setback in the year 2000, 19 years ago, where three people died in two different studies. So there is certainly a, a risk back then. They were using adenoviral and retroviral vectors. Now most of the successful approved studies are using adeno-associated virus, which is not adenovirus. Part of it, there's immune, immune risks that can affect the efficacy or create inflammatory disease. All of these w- will uh, have been worked out for the approved uh, gene therapies, but they're, they're for things like blindness and cancer is, is where we're focusing right now, where, where there's a fairly desperate situation and, in the case of blindness, a very local a- addition uh, of, the, of the gene therapy. So how, how does that work for cancer therapy then? What do you have in mind? Well, so one of the more promising methods is to make a T cell that has on its surface 
an engineered protein that recognizes the tumor, and then the T cell will kill the tumor. That's what T cells do for a living. Um, but then you have to protect the T cell from itself being killed by the recipient. Um, and so you can cloak the, the T cell so that even though it's from a non-matched control, normally transplants have to be matched, but for the first time in transplant history, you can now put in unmatched uh, by, uh, because you can engineer using editing tools the various parts of the incoming T-cell donor genome. So this is essentially putting a white blood cell that's not your own into a person and you've pre-programmed by editing that cell to go after a certain target. Right. And you've also cloaked it so the individual's own immune system won't wipe it out as a foreigner. Right. So that's pretty neat. But that has the advantage you can do the editing outside the body in a dish, which I presume gives you a layer of safety because you can then look at the cell and ask, well, does it appear to be behaving how it should before you put it back into the patient? Yes, you can do a little quality control outside the body, but in practice you can't really analyze all the cells because many of the analyses are are destructive, uh, meaning that you destroy the cell in doing the analysis. So you typically do a sample of the cells. There is one uh, uh, approved editing protocol. Editas has uh, LCA10 approval for doing uh, in vivo and not outside the body. And that's, again, that's another retinal therapy. What does that do? So LCA10 is is a retinopathy where you get degradation of your ability to to see. There's already a gene therapy that's approved by Spark for adding a gene that's missing. This is one where you're removing a gene that is causing dysfunction. So that's what editing does better than adding. It does, it's good at subtracting or killing genes. Given how fast this is all moving and actually how easy it is to do molecular biology these days, you can literally buy relatively easily everything you need to do some quite high-powered molecular biology in your garden shed. Not your garden shed, you've got a lab. But right. you know, in my garden shed, yeah. I, I could potentially do that. What are the implications of this, and how are we trying to regulate that? Do we think there's a risk that this could get out of control? Because we have had one person who has done, whether he really did or not, CRISPR on himself, and right. gene-edited himself, and then right. promptly died. Now, we don't know many of the facts about this and whether it was real or not, but right. it, it's clearly a risk, isn't it? Yeah. There's, a, there's at least four cases of people who have done some sort of gene therapy on themselves. Usually... I mean, if you wanted to do that, you would you ideally have a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial. Even if it's a small one, it would be better than just doing it on yourself. It's not recommended to, to do that. Uh, uh, no, I'm glad to hear you say that. But say, <coughs> say I'm an athlete. Yeah. I want a gold medal. And athletes are really driven people. And someone comes to them and says, well, I've made this construct. I reckon I can do a bit of CRISPR on your, on your muscles, and I can increase their ability to pick up oxygen from the blood. Yeah. They could do that, couldn't they? And we would struggle to detect it. Well, I'm, my guess is we're going to get better at detection as, uh, at the same time we get better at delivery. Wouldn't be recommended, especially in sports. So, so in everyday life, in sports, there are rules that try to make it so that you can compare current records with old records. So even if you put aside the health uh, risks, there's this whole record-keeping fairness But in everyday life, I think there's a bigger risk because there really are no rules other than the FDA and drug rules about enhancement of adults, let's say, to be better at business, you know, or slow down cognitive decline and so forth. I I think 99% of these will go through normal FDA processes, and we want to really minimize the ones that don't because they can 
mess it up for all the conventional studies and without adding any value. I mean, if they're not, if you don't do some kind of control, you don't really even know whether it worked or not. And your thoughts on what allegedly happened in China with these parents who signed up a consent form all in English, they didn't understand any of it and appear to have babies that have been genetically edited? Yeah, so I think it's, it's not established that they didn't understand what they were doing. Uh, I think they were in there in order to have children from an HIV-positive father. Well, there were already ways of doing that just by washing the sperm. But perhaps they also wanted to participate in history or have children that were resistant to HIV throughout their lifetime. Unfortunately, there is not a cure. There's safe sex, there's antiretroviral drugs... There may be a vaccine someday, but, but still, 2% of deaths in the world are due to HIV, so it's far, far from a solved problem. Anyway, the, allegedly two girls were born. This was announced in November. If it is confirmed, then, then we'll all be watching with interest to see whether their T-cells actually are HIV-resistant and whether they're otherwise uh, healthy. It'll be interesting, especially given the publication last week of a second patient who was cured, in inverted commas, of HIV infection by the donation of a bone marrow transplant from someone with the CCR5 Delta 32. We've well, got well, one minute the, left, The Delta George. 32 was not what these uh, young no, babies no, got. Okay. Uh, the more similar uh, clinical study is Sangamo has a editing that's been approved for quite a while for editing adult T-cells and HIV patients where you're making random uh, mutations to the CCR5 gene the Delta 32 is a very specific 32 base pair deletion, but you can generate almost any deletion and you can knock out the CCR5. So that's, that's the precedent, is the adult clinical trial. 30 seconds to go. Quick fire science, you've got to give very short answers too. U.S. law enforcement has access to commercial DNA databases. Isn't it irresponsible to call for mass screening until privacy rules are secured? I think if you want to protect yourself from that sort of thing, uh, it's, it's very challenging. You've got to have very st- strong laws. We do have a Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, but that's very different from law enforcement. You're leaving your DNA around everywhere anyway. Um, let's do the last one, which is what do you think about direct access to the population of uh, genomic data with blockchain-based companies like Xenome and, and DNAtrix? The idea being that we, we provide access, but it's anonymous and protected access. I, I think that's the sort of thing that a lot of uh, people are looking for. I, I myself are involved in one of those companies called Nebula Genomics, which uh, it's not just about blockchain. That just keeps a public record. But you need homomorphic encryption so that you can ask questions of an encrypted genome without ever sharing it. Uh, you not only retain possession of it, but you never have it in an unencrypted form so that even you can't read it uh, for something you didn't decide in advance was a legitimate question. So I think that's the wave of the future for a lot of people that have held off getting their genome. They've actually deprived themselves of medical benefit because of their concerns about privacy. I think this might be an answer. And on that note, there we must leave it. George, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And the time just flew by. Thank you very much, George Church. (laughs) 